Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner has been on the job for a little more than a year and a half now. This week, the Riverfront Times reported that much of Gardner's time in office has been largely characterized by chaos and conflict. We asked Circuit Attorney Gardner to join us to talk about her 20 months in the job. She agreed, and she joins me in studio. Great to have you with us. Thank you. I appreciate being here. What do you make of that headline, contentious and chaotic? Well, in any um, transition period, when you are a new elected official, taking over our office can be difficult. And transition is difficult and hard for people. So, of course, as in any prior prosecutor, there is going to be transition. People will leave. And some people may say it's chaos, but I say that's change. You replaced a woman who'd been in the job for a long, long time. Does that make it more difficult for you? A lot of Jennifer Joyce's staff was still in place. Well, I think when you you look at, I worked under Jennifer Joyce, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to work under Miss um, Joyce. And when I was there, it was the same thing. People would talk about the circuit attorney and her, you know, efforts to push the office forward. The same thing with me. I mean, taking the office when you have a progressive, reform-minded prosecutor, and this time you have individuals who have been in the office that may say, hey, I wanted to I wanted to do something else, or I did not support those reform efforts. And I share in, um, one, I understand that people, why people left. If they left because they wanted to go somewhere else, or they did not share in the vision of the office, but I respect, you know, their ability to, to make their choice, and it's fair. Uh, uh, according to the Riverfront Times, people who talked, and we have to point out that just about everybody who talked but did it anonymously. They were, <laughs> they were not identified. But uh, they said, and several of them said this, that uh, the vision was not communicated very well, that you were, in fact, standoffish to the people who were there when you got there. Well, of course, I'm, I'm going to disagree with that. And, and, of course, you know, I can't speak to what other individuals may have may think of, about me who are no longer there, but I know that I have an open door policy, and I had an open door policy from day one. And in that, we you know when you look at people who are leaving, that causes a lot of um, of conflict for some attorneys. People like things to say the same, and so when you have people who are leaving who have been around. I mean, you have all different reasons why people would say that, but, you know, we have an open-door policy. I continue to have an open-door policy, and and that's just simply not true. Where are you now with regard to staffing? I mean, right now we we have, you know, staffing is is not that much turnover right now. Um, We are about 138 um, total people. We have about 16 positions open. I think it's like six attorney positions. So we are, you know, looking to fill those positions and other positions, but right now we're relatively stable. How difficult are they to fill? I mean, I know they, you don't get rich working in the prosecutor's office or the public defender's office, for that matter. I mean, of course, you know, um, Don's salary is a, a key issue to recruiting. And when you have um, this jurisdiction where we've been fighting for salary increases, even prior to Jennifer Joyce, um, every circuit attorney is, basically has that issue of turnover. Once you get experience in our office, people leave for higher paying jobs. Mm. So we have to look at how we retain individuals. And I think that we've done a good job of trying to attract individuals, but we have to understand that we need more resources. And we fought um, recently under my administration for additional $1.58 million to support retention of prosecutors as well as support staff. How is your, your style different from Jennifer Joyce's? You worked for her. She was a tough cookie. 
Well, I mean, I think it's not fair to characterize one circuit attorney versus yeah. the other. I think we have to look at my tenure in the office is totally different from Jennifer Joyce's tenure. Right now, the prosecutor in this period in time, post-Ferguson, we're dealing with a lot of different issues. And we have to look at how we have to build trust with with the community so we can address violent crime. And those are the issues that we're dealing with at this most important crossroads where we know mass incarceration, we know the, the effects of mass incarceration. We have to deal with those those effects and we have to take responsibility to understand our job to reduce the effects of mass incarceration. And this system was not created overnight. It was created over a hundred of years. And so we are stuck with a system that people want change, I ran on change, and that's where we're pushing forward. And so change is hard. Change is hard for most people. And, and we have to push forward. But we're in a, a environment where prosecutors have to take moves to move reform efforts because the criminal justice system is unfair. And we have to, to promote fairness and justice for everyone inside that courtroom. We want to get more into detail, into detail on that. But, you know, when you talk about mass incarceration, you're, you're on the front line of that because you're the one that does the incarcerating. Well, we are the ones that the prosecutors have discretion to put those individuals into the system. And so that's what a reform-minded prosecutor has to understand, the power with, of doing that and the effects and harm that we can cause. And so that's why we support and I have supported and created diversion programs that are alter, alter, all, alternatives to incarceration and making sure we put the right people in the system at the same time trying to put people back on track to address the systemic issues of why individuals are going into the criminal justice system. That takes time, and it's a daunting task, but we are pushing forward with that, and we have to make changes. Give me a little more detail on the diversion uh, uh, programs that you have. How do they work? Well, we have numerous programs. We have the misdemeanor redirect program. We have the felony redirect program. We also have pretrial um, diversion program as well as young offenders. And in all these diversion programs, they're – the, they're giving the prosecutors the ability to give alternatives to incarceration. So, for example, Young Offenders Diversion Program. There are the 17 to 25 young offenders that they are a little riskier population. They're more likely to be victims of crime as well as to go further down the criminal justice continuum. So we're trying to get those young offenders earlier because we know, based off of science, the brains are not developed. And we look at how we can push for trauma-informed counseling, cognitive behavior therapy, rehabilitative restorative justice programs that, one, can get these young people back on track so they can be productive citizens. And so they can, one, get back on track so we're not dealing with them 20, 30 years down the road. So that's one of the, the innovative programs that we've created. At the same time, we have a pretrial release diversion program, which means that individuals who are low risk who are working, they got caught up in a certain situation, they're less likely to go further in the criminal justice system. What we're doing, we have a pre-release where basically we're just, we we tell them do 100 hours in community service, do whatever, if they have to pay back restitution, pay that back, we'll dismiss their case. We want to make sure for individuals who are low risk, they have a lighter touch so the criminal justice system does not push them further Mm -hmm. and harm the community. So it's about Balancing public safety, because when we give people opportunities and alternatives, we make our communities safer. And there are studies around this country that these programs work. They reduce overall crime. They reduce the violence that we hear and see day and day. And that allows prosecutors to focus on more violent individuals. 
that's uh, that's part of a two-pronged program. The other part would be there is this group called Close the Workhouse, which mm-hmm. has been active recently, and basically uh, they're saying that you know you could you could prosecute less, you could prosecute uh, the lower lower uh, crime for lower crimes, lesser crimes, prosecute less. Well, that's a good question. I mean, we are doing that. I mean, we I, I looked at the report. And the report basically makes recommendations to say, um, basically, you should not um, be holding people in um, the workhouse for low-level crimes as well as for lack of the ability to pay. Well, in most misdemeanors that are victimless and it's not a public safety risk, we are not requiring warrants. They're not being held. So those are not individuals in the workhouse. At the same time, we have also implemented lower-level felonies that we are actually um, going to give them summonses. We're not going to have arrest warrants. So we are doing the work that in that report, I think, that uh, was kind of, in some instances, a little misguided in terms of the work that we're doing. And if you truly support uh, reducing the amount of people in the workhouse, then we need to look at how we fund policies that fund diversion programs. You know, last year, this past year, we had $390,000 cut from the budget for our diversion program. So if you support these initiatives and, and this report speaks to that, then we need to advocate for money to address whether someone who is low level, low risk mm-hmm. to the community and fund diversion programs. So, I mean, I support that. But at the same time, we have to look at in their report, most people in the workhouse are on probation violations. So that is not that is a probation violation. So diversion lessens the amount of people on probation, which is the a technical violation that has fueled mass incarceration over years. And so I support strengthening diversion programs. At the same time, we have to look at our job as prosecutors is to balance public safety. You know, if you are in the workhouse, you are a public safety risk. And so, you know, we have to also look at that. We have to protect victims and people who may be harmed from people being let out because they are a public safety risk. But I support you know, people are not held in the workhouse because of lack of the ability to pay. And another thing, Don, which you should know this, the prosecutor makes recommendations. It's the judge who decides what amount of bail that that person is on. And so in that report, I saw any, I saw nothing of what the judge's role in this process is. Hmm. Do you support the cash bail project, which is, uh, an, it's, it's in effect a, a loan system, a lending system for uh, people who are in the workhouse who don't have the money they, to, to meet bail? I support that. I mean, I support any efforts to, you know, give people the opportunity to, to make bond and bail. But I, at the same time, I would love to sit down with People who worked the report, you know, wrote this report as well as, and I've sat down with the bail bond um, people project, and we want to come up with a solution to address the complex conversation of, of, of overhauling the bail bond process. You know, we have, it's a, a very complex situation. There shouldn't be any difficulty with you sitting down with these folks, though, should there be? No, I mean, it's no difficulty, but we have to understand that we all have a job and, you know, we have individuals who have this one size fits all type of approach, even in terms of reform. And I think that reform takes time. Um, it, it's a collaborative approach. And we need to see the effects of when you do, get, do away with all cash bond. I, I tell individuals who have this discussion, I say, OK, well, if you <clears> want to <throat> do away with cash bond, OK, and you give a judge only option is to release you or let you go. Mm-hmm. Even the bail bond project, the ones who started all this in New York, agreed that you can also create a policy 
that becomes more egregious when people cannot get out at all or have the opportunity. So we need many different opportunities uh, to evaluate that conversation, not this one-size-fits-all type approach. And that's what I want. I want a real conversation. And and let's put it all out there on the table and not blame people for, you know, I'm not the facilitator of the workhouse. I'm not the facility manager of the workhouse. Mm-hmm. So when you have in this report the prosecutor can close the workhouse, that's 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 not the right information. Should you be the one to take the initiative to get these people together and have these conversations? I've had many conversations, and I want to have more with um, individuals with dealing with this report. But I want to have a real conversation about you know what we what can be done and what cannot be done, and let's make sure that we stop p- passing blame of 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 the workhouse. The workhouse has been around, but I ask people, you know, we still have to have facilities that hold people because people are yeah. going to commit crime. What's the option when you close the workhouse? Well, there is no option uh, in in terms of incarceration if there is no workhouse. The workhouse is not going to close. I don't think anybody realistically thinks that's going to happen. But I support changing the conditions of the workhouse. But, you know, I'm not the facility manager, and I think that the the mayor and and those discussions are best suited for her. Well, we have to take a break. We'll do that now. We're talking with Kim Gardner, who is the St. Louis City Circuit Attorney. We'll come back and continue our conversation and talk about some of the things that are also very much in the news these days. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back as we continue our conversation with St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. Okay, the big story of the last couple of weeks, your relationship with the police department and this whole extension list thing. Where does that stand right now? Right now, you know, I really can't go into details about the exclusion list. But, um, I mean, police integrity and uh, critical component of a fair and just criminal justice system. And as prosecutors, we have to make sure we continue to have that, that credibility with law enforcement officers. And, I mean, we basically, this list was created and given by the demands of Commander Sack. We all know that. Um but I can't go into the explicit details. But, I mean, we have to make sure that the relationships with the police and prosecutors are on board. I've talked with the chief, and we agreed to work together. But at the same time, you know, as prosecutors, the credibility of police is, is crucial for fairness and justice. And we have to make sure we continue to work with them. But at the same time, you have to hold them accountable. Would it be fair to say that relationship is strained now? I mean, I don't think that the relationship is strained. I think the relationship is you're always going to have a contentious relationship with law enforcement when there's issues between them. But at the same time, we're not a rubber stamp for law for the police department. We're actually a, a value partner, and they're a value partner. And we have to work together, but credibility is, is key to that relationship. And so as prosecutors, we have to do our job. And we have to make sure the system is fair for everybody. Well, I think that many people in the public are, are uh, confused about what's going on here. I understand that you can't talk about details, but it's kind of a he said, she said kind of situation. And people are saying, well, somebody can't be telling the truth here because they're saying different things. Well, we all know the truth. And, and like I said, um, I don't well, want to go into specifics, <laughs> but um, unfortunately, that list was created at the request of Commander Sack. 
That list has been created by previous prosecutors all over the country, as well as the former prosecutor, Jennifer Joyce. Um, We have to evaluate any witnesses, whether police witnesses or late witnesses, for credibility. And that's our job. And that's what we're doing. And we we have made a committed effort with the police department to, one, make sure police officers are given due process. But at the same time, we have to do our job to evaluate their credibility. Did the police department ask for this list? Yes. Uh And uh, they have it. They have it. And that's where it sits right now. It's just going to stay that way. The list is not going to be made public, obviously. Yes, that's due to the the court's order as well as the St. Louis Police Union's Mm -hmm. uh, ability to make sure that list stays stays where it's at, basically, Mm -hmm. under a temporary restraining order, which the court ruled on last week. That, that's why I ask if the relationship between uh, the two sides is, is strained now, because the police union has gotten into this, and you know it's it's the third spoke on the wheel here. Well, the police union, I mean, they I mean, people forget the police union has their jobs to advocate vigorously for individual officers, and so their job is always going to be one sided. They're a bargaining unit, but in terms of what we deal with, we deal with St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department and all their officers and all high-level staff members, and we have to have a good working relationship. <clears throat> and to have it, to make this issue an issue when this has been done previously, I mean, that's the rhetoric of the police union who basically will fight against any um, regulations or anything that, that's against what they believe is against any individual officers. But this is not an indictment on anyone. This is about us holding people accountable, even police officers, and we're going to do our job. Let me uh, change subjects now and, and go to the uh, the Greitens case, which I guess is probably <laughs> – we're both kind of chuckling about that. But that that was a relentless news story that for a long period of time – and you, of course, were right in the middle of that. Um, you think you should have prosecu- prosecuted that case? I stand with you know us bringing charges. I stand with the way we – my team handled the case and I and – I stand with how it ended up. So I think that um, our t- it was a tough case, but we did our job. And I think we have to hold everyone accountable. And it, unfortunately, it had to be the governor, the former governor, sorry. Would would you do anything differently? No. Yeah. Did that turn the invasion of privacy uh, part of the case? Did that turn on the potential of your testifying? Because uh, there was con- some concern that you as a prosecutor uh, appearing as a witness in the trial, that couldn't happen. Well, I'm going to say this, Donna, and we all know what happened, but, you know, to I really can't go into the specifics of the case, but I'm going to let you know this. You know, we look at trial tactics of the defense team, and that was a trial tactic that was tried. And um, whether someone says it's successful or not, um, we all know what happens. We all know that our victim was credible, and I believed in the charges we brought. I believed in the victim's story, and I believed in the case. Would you do it again? Yes, I would. Differently? No, I would not. Yeah. Okay. What was it like for you? I mean, you were relatively new to the job. Well, you were new to the job. Was I've forgotten exactly how many months you'd been in office there. But what was it like for you going through that with that day after day pounding in the press of this story? Well, I'm just – when you have access to resources to have a PR team that – basically crafts the message of what's going on inside the courtroom. That's called strategy of the defense, and they did a good job. But we all know what happened. We know the day-to-days, the individuals on their, on the case in my office. We did a good job in terms of, you know, proceeding forward and doing the best job we could do. And I think that we did a great job under the scrutiny, and I think that we have to hold everyone accountable. 
It turned on the photo. The case. You know, I'm, I can't speak to specifics, but you know, I like I said, I believe in the case. Yeah, let's uh, let's take a call. Chris in South St. Louis wants to talk about the uh, the Greitens case, so let's bring him in. Go ahead, Chris. You're on the air. Uh, she talks. She talks about credibility and holding people accountable. Um, I'm questioning. Uh, I started to question credibility as a consequence of one aspect of the Grimes case, and that is when she lied about the notes. There, if there hadn't been, a, and the video showed that notes were taken by the investigator, um, how does she speak to that? Uh, who, who's holding you accountable for that? Clearly, you lied about it. Well, I don't like the word lie, but uh, go ahead and respond if you would, Kim. Well, in that case, that was a discovery issue that was made available to the other side. And as I said, the defense has a a well-oiled PR machine that can turn every little discovery issue into something that it was not. So um, that was a discovery issue. Um, that, that issue was brought forward, and that's, those were the facts. But there were, was an issue as to whether or not these notes had been taken that you were aware of that. And that they were made aware by my office, you know. So, you know, when we talk about notes, those were made aware by my office, and they were turned over in the proper time that was designated by both sides. Uh, another caller here, Ron, joins us from Ferguson. Ron, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes, I want to disclose that I am a supporter of Ms. Gardner, uh, and I do understand the problem with the workhouse. Of course, it has to stay open, uh, and is what the situation that happened in Ferguson with the tickets, I think we get people being poor sometimes uh, confused with criminality. And I believe that some people with low-level crimes should allow to be out on their own recognizance the very first time. If they fail to appear from that point on, then, they, then I would say they have to post bail. But uh, a lot of these people do lose their jobs and things like that when they uh, are arrested. And we don't want them to spiral downward because of uh, some bad decisions, but there are some people that should never be let out. Uh, thanks, Ron, for the call. I think that's a point that uh, that you've already been made. Yes. Like I said before, public safety is our top priority. If they're low-level offenders, we're not asking for individuals to be put on a bond. We're, at, we're putting out summonses and misdemeanors, low-level victimless um, misdemeanors, as well as low-level felonies. We had DeRay McKesson on our program yesterday, and one of the points that he made, uh, you're, you're aware of uh, Mr. McKesson, are you not? Mm. He's an activist and was very active in the Ferguson thing. And one of the points that he made, and he made it several times and very pointedly, was the fact that our policing system, he says, is broken. That is a, a systemic failure. Um, given your relationship with the police department, you might not want to talk too much about that now. But would you agree with him basically that we need to revise the way we police? I mean, I think we need to revise the whole criminal justice system. I'm not going to point out one um, actor versus another. I think we have to look at how we as a community, as the city of St. Louis, address violent crime and how we address alternatives to incarceration. We want to have these discussions and we always want to bring one actor. But at the same time, we have to support policies and 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 implement procedures like diversion to address these things because we have prosecutor-led diversions for the first time in the city of St. Louis. We need to strengthen those diversion programs. Those diversion programs are ways that when you have, when you say systems are broken, like police may arrest lower-level individuals, 
those are alternatives that the prosecutor can divert those individuals out the system. So we have to look, we have to have a better conversation to blame individuals, but we also have to sit down and understand that public safety and, and the idea of criminality, many people think when you commit a crime in this city, they should be punished. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to look at St. Louis has done a great job of arresting and prosecuting. We send more people to prison in this jurisdiction than any other municipality. Out of the 115 counties of the state of Missouri, we send more people to prison. But is that making our city safer? So we have to to have a real conversation and to change the ideas of how we can better police in communities as well as better create programs as prosecutors. But at the same time, we have to understand that that judges, we all are part of a system. But if we continue to blame people for the ineffectiveness of the system, that's just not healthy. We need to sit down. Of course, police need to do a better job of who they arrest. Prosecutors need to do a better job of who we charge. At the same time, we also have to look at how we use probation and parole, who is the fuel of mass incarceration, and how we can better put the people on probation and parole who need to be on probation and parole, but take away these low-level offenders that need alternatives. And we have to have the conversation. We have to fund systems like that. We have to start having real conversations and stop having this, uh, we need to be tough on crime. We need to be smart on crime. And that's what we're doing. Well, one of the other points that he makes is that St. Louis has the worst record in the country in terms of police uh, action and violent action against uh, young black men. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree that we have to do something with the police relationships, law enforcement relationships. That's why I'm very um, big proponent of law enforcement. And we're part of law enforcement building trust with the community. You know, we're going out and doing outreach to the community. We're not just talking to the community when something happens. We're actually trying to engage the community before something happens. So that's why these diversion programs and we support, you know, Law enforcement being part of these diversion programs, they have law enforcement led diversion programs that we want to support. And we look forward to working with law enforcement on those type of programs. Another caller here will bring in Zach. Uh, Zach, thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Hi, I just wanted to ask uh, Ms. Gardner if she could elaborate on the difference between her approach to plea agreements uh, between her and her predecessor, Ms. Joyce, and the reasoning uh, behind that approach. Your difference on plea agreements with uh, Jennifer Joyce? Well, I think the first thing is that from day one, we we, we made recommendations for plea agreements. Um, Jennifer Joyce, based on policy previous, decided not to give recommendations. So that's the first thing we implemented. We implemented a recommendation for a plea bargain. And, you know, we evaluate the cases um, differently in terms of we look at the type of crime. We look at the, the history as well as other systemic issues that affect that individual going further in the system. So I think that, you know, we have an approach that in certain types of cases, you know, we evaluate them um, thoroughly. We look at alternatives a little bit differently, but we actually look at public safety and how we have to hold that individual accountable. So we balance all three of those things. I had an attorney ask me to ask you, uh, knowing that you're going to be on the program today, he said uh, that you campaigned that you would let attorneys make their own offers in cases, your attorneys. Is that happening? Well, what I said is we have to give autonomy to attorneys. In some instances, we do allow attorneys to have autonomy within boundaries. And so we have implemented that. But at the same time, we have to also make sure that, that autonomy and that, that work toward autonomy is not based off 
a biased approach. So we are working toward giving more attorneys autonomy to make the recommendations, but we do have um, we allow the attorneys to give a, to make recommendations to our team, and we take that into effect when making a group decision of that disposition of that that, that recommendation for that case. Okay, and we have uh, I guess it's an email here from Greg. Uh, ask why it takes so long to set court dates. You have to ask the court. <laughs> <laughs> It's the, it's the judge and the court that makes that uh, determination. What's, uh, Kim Gardner, what's on the agenda now? I mean, moving ahead, you've had 20 months, and even the Riverfront Times article suggested that uh, there's a learning curve and that you've improved the situation within the, the office uh, from where it was a few months ago. What's, what's next for you? I mean, what's next is we have to move forward to, like you said, build relationship with the community and community trust. We have to make sure that we... Um, strengthen protection of witnesses and victims in our in our jurisdiction. We have to hold the most violent individuals accountable. At the same time, we want to be a more efficient office, an effective office. So, so we have been strengthening our our infrastructure to become a paperless office. So we can one speed the process of um, at the same time dispose of cases faster. Um, we want to strengthen our diversion programs. We want to create more diversion programs. We at the same time want to make sure we look at um, strengthening our conviction integrity program. Um, We have to look at how we look at officer-involved shootings and how we want to have an independent investigative bureau so we can control those investigations. So there's many different things that we're working on and we're pushing forward this next year. Okay. Well, at Kim Gardner, we're going to have to let it go at that. I'm just reading uh, a tweet here that we can't uh, put on the air because it's just too late for that. But I want to thank you for being with us and having this conversation. It's been, uh, it's been a great uh, pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Okay. Thank you. That is Kim Gardner, the circuit attorney for the city of St. Louis. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.